I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My thanks to this week's sponsor, Hayloft Plants, Pershore in Worcestershire. Hello and welcome. To this week in the garden. I'm Peter Seabrook, here to exchange some news, views, and hopefully answer some of your gardening quandaries. We have had uh, weather appropriate to early September, heavy dews, and uh, quite fresh in the mornings until uh, earlier this week when the temperature suddenly rose. I was driving to Ipswich and it suddenly became quite warm and humid. Well, that warm weather is very welcome because, quite honestly, after the wind and some dull days and cold nights, growth seemed to just stop. And with this bit of warmth now and moisture about, hopefully things will make uh, just a bit more growth before we hit the depths of autumn. Sally, en route to a camping holiday in Italy, tells me that... uh, There are many colourful displays of begonia big and whopper. They're pretty good here too. It's interesting how both the begonias and the busy lizzies sort of respond when we get heavy dews. They love that extra moisture. And boy, are they putting on some flower power now. A little bit of practical news... I was very pleased to see on the garden centre shelves recently that growth technology are offering rooting hormone again. They call it Clonex. And it's very useful, particularly with cuttings that we're taking at this time of the year that are what we call half ripe, getting a bit woody. Because if you can dip those in a bit of rooting hormone, it not only makes them root quicker, you also get more roots on the cut end of the shoot that you're handling. And there is one little warning with all of these uh, rooting hormones. They have a set shelf life. And I'm pleased to see that growth technology have actually got a use-by date. Uh, And it's pretty important that you follow that. Beyond a year, they tend to lose quite a lot of their strength. On the advice front... We have five compact cultivars of sunflower just coming into bloom at about two feet high in floral fantasia. The seed supplied by ProVeg. There John Burroughs, an absolute mine of information on sunflowers, well and vegetables and many other seed raised crops, is currently in hospital. And uh, John, we wish you well. The visitors at Hyde Hall looking over the fence at a patch of your sunflowers, uh, many of them are asking, why are they so short? It's surprising how many people have not woken up to the wide range of colours, flower forms, you know, they can be semi-double and double, and height. 
I love a lot of these uh, really compact kinds because they're not one stem with a lollipop flower on the top. They are multi-flowered. And so uh, you have colour for a much longer period. And in my opinion, they look much more in proportion. I can give you a tip too. If you sow them out in the open ground, they will come up a little bit too thick perhaps because they need to be spaced at least 12 to 15 inches apart if all of those side branches are going to develop properly. But instead of thinning and throwing the thinnings away, even up to the stage of the top bud just beginning to develop, if you get a trowel and just dig in around and lift each young plant with a ball of soil, put it into a pot with some potting compost, firm the potting compost around, give it a really good watering, and within two or three days they've rooted out and you can move them very easily. Uh, it was a trick, really, which I came across in the Monet Garden in France. Behind the scenes they had a whole row of cold frames where they were raising things like um, cornflower, antirrhinum, calendula in the soil, and then when there was a patch of something that had gone over in the main garden, might have been peonies or delphiniums or something, they would lift some of these annuals with a ball of soil, just as I was recommending for the sunflowers, and transplant them. It gives them a good watering, and they work pretty well. Amongst the queries this week was an inquiry about the compact evergreen ilex, uh, which is being used a, a fair bit to replace box. And the questioner had really a nice little low hedge of uh, this plant and most, well, a good run of them, lost their leaves. I'm afraid planting in high summer was risky and it looks as if the plant root ball had dried out even though the hedge had been regularly watered. You know, always in this situation when plants suddenly lose their leaves or you think they're dying, you use uh, the point of a knife or a strong thumbnail and just scratch the bark. If it's green beneath, then there's every chance that new growth will be made as the damper conditions develop uh, and it will shoot again. So scratch the bark. If it's green, be patient. If you scratch the bark and it's brown, well then keep working down. And if it's brown all the way down, well then uh, the chances of success are a bit grim. Now our guest today is Professor Chris Baines. Chris and I go back an awful long way and I have to tell you, he's one of the people that I hold in highest regard when it comes to uh, the care of the environment. He seems to be such a practical, hands-on man and talks such common sense. The work he's done with young people and communities has no match. One of the projects Chris is most synonymous with is the Urban Wildlife Group. And that's the first thing I wanted to ask him about. Yeah, the Urban Wildlife Group was was a bit of a revolution, really, 40 years ago. Um, it started in Birmingham, and there were a, just a small group of us. There were two or three really good amateur naturalists who were mavericks in their world. There were a couple of really enthusiastic teachers who wanted to teach kids outdoors and they were restricted in what they could do. And then there were two or three people like me who were really landscape people. But we all shared a common passion, which was for 
people to have better access to nature right on the doorstep where they lived and worked. And that particularly was true of schools. And so the Urban Wildlife Group grew out of that. And 40 years ago, it's 40 years ago this year, all the opposition to that whole idea came from the traditional nature conservation organisations. So the Worcestershire Wildlife Trust and the Staffordshire Wildlife Trust, all these these traditional conservation organisations around Birmingham and the black country, which is where we were, were horrified. I mean, they just kept saying, you're devaluing the currency of conservation here. This is a, you're saying this is about people. And nature conservation is about precious places that we keep people out of. Now, that's 40 years ago, remember. Um, and the place that really motivated us as much as anything was a fantastic site just north of Birmingham city centre, a huge sand quarry with lakes in the bottom of it, wetlands in the bottom of it, full of kids on their tracker bikes and things. And it was threatened with landfill. The council wanted to fill it in. And uh, so I wrote to the RSPB saying, this is a really interesting site. We'd like your support. And they wrote back in 1980 to say, we've seen the address, basically. It's in Birmingham. There can't be anything there of interest to us. And as a consequence, it was filled in and they lost 200 pairs of sand martins that had been nesting in the sand cliffs. So things have changed out of all recognition in 40 years. Um, But 40 years ago, this was a revolution. And what about now, 40 years on? Is the Urban Wildlife Group still up and running? The Urban Wildlife Group's continued to grow, really. Um, It's much more of a membership organisation now. And perhaps most surprising of all is now officially the Wildlife Trust for Birmingham and the Black Country. So it's joined that group of county trusts that were so opposed to it in the first place. Of course, like every relatively small charity, it's struggling with with finances and things in the present circumstances. But what's nice for me, I've just been working with them quite a bit to celebrate the 40th anniversary, and it's full of the same kind of young, enthusiastic people that I remember from 40 years ago. There's old stages like me talking about what it was like in the old days to people who are in their early 20s now who are just as kind of enthusiastic as as our first band of, of staff and volunteers were all those years ago. And it's never been more needed. You know, there's suddenly government is talking about relaxing planning controls on brownfield sites, for instance, They always talk about that, but the brownfield sites are very often the wild spaces that people in towns and cities walk their dogs on, do their courting on, see their first butterfly or their kestrel over. And so, you know, there is a, there's still a need for the kind of campaigning side of the Urban Wildlife Group. And the other thing that's changed dramatically in 40 years, I think, is that 40 years ago, you could take a group of kids out into the school grounds or beyond without too much trouble. These days, really problematic to get kids out of school and particularly out of school grounds. So the educational side of things, I think, in many ways has become tougher over that 40-year period, but no less important, nevertheless. I understand that there was an international daisy chain championship. <laughs> now, come yeah, on. Yeah, the, the famous, the now famous International Daisy Chain Championships. We knew that we needed to really engage with the parks departments because it was obvious if you were, if you were trying to do nature conservation in, in an urban area like Birmingham, you were never going to own land. You could never afford to buy land for nature reserves. 
But there was all this green space managed by other people that we felt could be better for wildlife and better for people's access. And the key to that in the parks was to get them to... There, at that moment, I think Birmingham was spending £12 million a year on grass cutting. And it was all mown to within you know, a millimetre of its life. <laughs> and it all looked exactly the same. So we... We leaked a story to the Birmingham Post to say that Birmingham had been selected uh, as the site of that year's International Daisy Chain Championships. <laughs> it was a complete fantasy. We made the whole thing up. And then we sent the cutting to the Parks Department and said, I don't know whether you picked this up, but you might have noticed that Birmingham has been selected for the International Daisy Chain Championships. And what we really need now is about an acre of daisies so that the championships can take place in the city. And we think the best place to do that would be at the side of the boating lake in Cannon Hill Park, which was grazed very closely by Canada geese. And interestingly, in Canada, daisies are called gooseweed because they're about the only thing that survives that very close cropping. So Birmingham Parks Department put an electric fence around a, a perfect square of this lawn kept the geese out, the daisies came up. It was an absolutely glorious white patch of daisies. So you got the press coverage and convinced the council to give you the space. Were you scrambling to work out the rules and <laughs> get someone to take part? We had lots of contact with lots of schools by then, and so it was very easy for us to wheel out um, a dozen or so groups of kids with their teachers who all sat amongst the daisies, very photogenic, and all made daisy chains for a day. The mayor was photographed with the best of the daisy chains round his neck. Miraculously, a Birmingham school won the International Daisy Chain <laughs> Championships that year. I mean, the upshot of that was actually a transformation in the way in which the Parks Department thought about the role they could play. And I, we had a really supportive councillor who was a, actually was a postman in, in real life. So he understood what we were talking about because he was up at five in the morning. He'd seen the urban foxes and he'd heard the owls and all the rest of it. And he happened to be chairing the parks committee. And years later, I bumped into him and he said, you know, we're selling organic ice cream now in one of our parks and it comes from the cows that we've got grazing in that park and it's all your fault <laughs> because of that damned International Daisy Chain Championship that you set up. The other thing which always astonishes people, I think, is that the real breakthrough in all of that was actually down to the Thatcher government, which had just come in, and very high unemployment. And they set up a, an, a job creation programme, the Manpower Services Commission. And as a consequence of that, we were able to employ in this little charity that we'd set up, we were able to employ four ecologists, three qualified planners, all these young graduates that were coming out of university couldn't get jobs, but we were able to get a year's funding for them. So within about six months of starting, we had 40 staff. It was an extraordinary time. And, and within a year, urban wildlife groups had started in London, in Glasgow, in Edinburgh, in Liverpool, in Manchester, in Sheffield... So it, it was starting all over the place, uh, and it really began in Birmingham 40 years ago. I mean, what a man you are, eh? <laughs> and shouldn't we have a daisy chain championship again? <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that we gardeners know about is the delicate balance that exists with uh, Mother Nature, and we're hearing that that balance is in peril. 
insects generally are in dire trouble worldwide. I always say that when I was growing up as a seven or eight-year-old, one of the treats was to go out in my granddad's car out into the countryside around Sheffield. And my job at the age of eight was to keep having to get out of the car to scrape the insects off the windscreen and the headlamps. Never happens now. And as a consequence of that, of course, bats and swallows and all these other things that depend on insects are also struggling. So insects generally, and perhaps bees are the celebrities in a way, but there's no difference really between the struggle they're having and the struggle that many other insects are having. They're all the more important in a way because we we see them also as the most important pollinators. And I think people, if they understand anything about insects, it's that they're important for pollinating food plants. But of course, that's... It's not as simple as that either. Bees aren't the only pollinators. Moths are quite important for night-flowering plants, for instance. But I think they're struggling for all the usual reasons. You know, the, the whole pesticide revolution of the last 50 years, 60 years, started out pretty indiscriminate. We've become much cleverer at how we use chemicals now, but there was a long period when we weren't very clever about it. And I, I trained as a horticulturist in the 60s, and I always say I spent three years being taught how to kill everything. You know, the edges of fields that used to be full of wildflowers mostly are not full of wildflowers anymore. The hedges that used to be supporting a lot of the wildlife in the countryside, many of them have disappeared. The wetlands that we could never drain in the past we now have machines big enough to be able to drain almost any, wet, any wetland you like to think of. So there's been a kind of a degrading of the landscape generally. And the, the creatures that most directly suffer in that process are the small ones, the invertebrates. And bees are just a, a part of that process. And gardens that provide a diversity of habitat and a long period of, of flower for instance, are really important for their survival. Chris, over the years, and certainly over the last 20 years, uh, I've, I've been noting those garden flowers which attract the most pollinating insects, bees, butterflies and the like. And it doesn't always match up with what the environmentalists recommend. I mean, double zinnias and uh, the triploid French marigolds the bees and butterflies absolutely swarm over those. I think we're still learning a lot about it, actually. I mean, the, the, the Royal Horticultural Society has been doing a lot of, of work, as you know, on pollinators and garden plants. And one of the things that has emerged quite recently is that some of those um, diploids and triploids, some of those hybrids that are sterile, still are producing pollen. And they become a real magnet for bees because actually they keep on, the flowers keep on producing pollen over and over and over again because, of course, it doesn't work. <laughs> so, so they're producing pollen, which is perfectly satisfactory for the bees, but not very satisfactory for the zinnias, you know. So um, I don't think anybody really knew that until people started to really look at gardens and wildlife and realised that actually, certainly in the UK context, our gardens are now probably... The, the last major stronghold for quite a lot of these things. I went to a specialist bee plant nursery the other day in Oxfordshire and the woman who grows the plants there was showing me her experimental beds and she's testing different hybrids and different varieties of garden plants. And I said, so go on, then how many different kinds of bees have you plotted on here? And she said, I've so far had 77 different species of bees. This is in a tiny area the size of a living room. 
And then she immediately kind of stepped into the flower bed and started to capture these things in little jars to show me. Very few of them would anybody have recognised as bees. I mean, these are solitary bees and tunnelling bees and leafcutter bees, but there are something like 250 different bee species. And in a very small garden, you're probably getting 30 or 40 of them through the summer. And out in the wider countryside, those species have a real struggle to find pollen or nectar. So gardens have... In, in that 40 years or so since we first got together, I think gardens have come of age from a wildlife point of view. They've been seen not just as a nice to have, but they're absolutely central to nature conservation now in the UK. Well, can I ask, what can gardeners do, in your opinion, to make a difference? If people, if people see their gardens as, as um, kind of service stations for the local wildlife and particularly for invertebrates, then they will make a difference. And, and I think one of the worrying trends of the last 40 years is the lack of living material. You know, it's down to timber decking and paving and walls and, and evergreen shrubs because they're easy. And if you do that, there's nowhere for the wildlife to live. So certainly embracing the whole idea of flower borders and the cottage garden style of diversity in gardens is really good for invertebrates. But it's interesting, it's not just the flowers either. You need places for these insects to overwinter, many of them. One of the things that I always am thrilled to see in my garden is the very neat circular holes that are cut in the leaves of the roses. And those are cut by leafcutter bees that fly in. It's wonderful to watch. They fly in like miniature sewing machines and they just land on the leaf, whiz round and fly off with a perfect circle of leaf, which they then take away to a little tunnel somewhere to build the, the cocoon in which they lay their eggs. Well, you know, if you start to stop that kind of thing happening in your garden, you're cutting off the supply of a whole range of different aspects of the habitat. But there's loads of information about this now. You know, the RHS uh, is, is one of the places you can go to to find out more about which plants are good for pollinators. There's a lot of information, I'm pleased to say. There's no question. Uh, gardeners are caring people. Uh, what should we be uh, growing to help out? The world's your oyster, really. I mean, we're so lucky in this country in that you really can grow a huge range of things. What I always suggest is that you try and stretch the season as much as possible. So, for instance, very early in the spring, grape hyacinths, which are, couldn't be easier to grow, you plant them as bulbs, they come up every year. And if you've got grape hyacinths flowering in February and the peacock butterflies come out of hibernation, they'll be on your grape hyacinths because there's almost no other nectar around at that time of year. And right at the other end of the season having the very latest flowering of the Michaelmas daisies, for instance, does the same kind of job. So I think as a simple suggestion, if people try and go to their garden centre or go to a National Trust garden every two or three weeks through the year and look at where the bees are and then take those plants and put them in their garden, in that way, the bees are making the choice for you. And, and it's quite surprising. If you look at a, a display of different Michaelmas daisies in the garden centre, all the butterflies will be on one or two of them. So the, the insects are really good at selecting the best of the plants, far better than I am. 
Chris, it's great talking to you. You're such an enthusiast. Long may you continue to stir us and get us to move in the sensible directions in the way that you do. Well, thank you, Peter. I mean, the heart of everything I do is horticulture, remember? That's where it all started, and that's no doubt where it will end. Um, So learning how the world works is a great gift for gardeners, I think. And it's, it's great that we have people like you as well who can inspire people. So lovely to talk to you and thanks for the, thanks for the opportunity. That was a great conversation with Chris. He mentioned the RHS website has some information on plants that are good for pollinators. I'll have Rich put the link to that website in the podcast description. 
progressed. What great news that is. Well, I'm afraid uh, jobs have rather been getting the better of me lately, and as the old saying goes, I'm like the cow's tail, all behind. Hope to have caught up a bit by next week, and we look forward to joining you then. My thanks to this week's sponsor, Hayloft Plants, Pershore in Worcestershire. And of course to my producer, Rich Jarman. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.